Hear now the word of God. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared, appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seemed to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets in Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we cry out to you. We cry out to you in our emptiness. We cry out to you in our need. We cry out to you for help because you are the Lord, our healer. The one who binds up the wounds of your people and sets our hearts aright. Would you set our hearts aright today? Would you use your word to search us and try us and show us if there is any unrighteous way within us? Send your spirit to be our helper in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. By now, I suspect uh, all of us are intimately familiar with the legal woes of the Apostle Paul. Um, Over and over again, week in and week out, we have seen Paul ferried from one official to another, held in custody, meeting dignitaries, explaining himself, and then getting thrown back in the hole again. And over and over, this has been the repetition. But I told my wife this morning, I said, I have uh, one promise to make. This is the last time we're going to see Paul give a speech before a legal body this morning. Uh, And that's true. This is the last time that Paul is going to give a speech before the Roman government in our text. More than likely, he gave more speeches. He likely gave speeches when he was in Rome. But this is the last one that we are going to be privy to. This is a moment, this moment where he meets with Agrippa and Felix and Festus. Uh, This is the moment that has been building for two years now. It's the climax of all these other meetings that he has had. And one thing that makes this this particular occasion notable is its setting, because Paul is speaking before the Jewish king. He's speaking with the military officers present, and he's speaking before the leading men of the city. So once all of the dignitaries have entered the audience hall and the pomp and circumstance has been observed, Festus finally commands for Paul to be brought in. And he's such a contrast because here are these uh, handsome people, well-dressed, 
clean, relatively happy. And here comes Paul, this bedraggled, miserable man, or at least seemingly miserable, with chains hanging from his wrists. And Luke relates to us the introduction that Festus gives. Um, He doesn't give us any new information. We've heard all of this before. But I, I suspect that Luke includes this because he wants us to know that this is a case that is being carefully handled. Even after two years, Festus is still quite aware of what's going on, what's happened. He's keeping track of Paul. He's being very carefully watched because it is a big deal to them that Paul is a Roman citizen. So to them, this is highly important. This needs to be done right. And when Festus introduces Paul, he also reiterates something we've already heard and that as readers, we already know he's not guilty. Even the ones holding him have no reason to keep holding him except for the fact that the Jewish leaders are putting pressure on the government to do something with Paul, even if they don't have the legal justification for it. And so it's easier for them to hold Paul indefinitely, without charges, without evidence, than to have the Jewish leaders ticked off at them, right? That's the problem. They don't want to have that happen. And so, so far, uh, they've been doing the easier thing, but not the right thing. They've been doing the expedient thing, but not the righteous thing. Because Paul should have been released already. And it's It's sort of humorous. In the speech, Festus gives this rationale. Why have I called you here? Why are we all here this morning? And the answer that he gives is bookkeeping, (laughs) paperwork, rule following. Uh, He says he doesn't have anything to write about Paul in his report. And so, in a sense, Paul says, I have this blank form on my sheet. And maybe if all of us put our heads together, we can think of what needs to be written in this empty space. It's almost like he's saying, we can't charge him with sedition. We can't charge him with desecration. Let's find something we can charge him with before we send him to Rome. It's sort of an understatement when he says it seems like a good idea not to send someone to Rome without charges. Well, that is definitely an understatement. The alternative is they let him go and they make the Jewish leaders unhappy. And that's the reality about politics. And uh, I think those in politics will probably tell you this. When you're dealing with a finicky public that believes you are there for them, to make them happy, to make their lives better, to fill in the hole in their heart and make everything better, that you could be doing everything right, but oftentimes it isn't the right thing that makes people happy. Oftentimes, the right thing actually makes people upset. And there is pressure in politics to do the wrong thing for the right reason. Uh, Let's do this thing that we know is wrong, but it's okay because it'll keep life stable. It'll keep the water running. It'll keep the lights on. Yes, we might have to mistreat this person or break a promise, but it's worth it for the greater good. That's the pressure That public officials often experience. And that's what these officials experience here. They they do the easy thing. But they need a reason why they're doing the easy thing. They need a justification for it. So why are they holding Paul instead of just letting him go? Well, that's what they're here to find out. (laughs) They have a mission and uh, they are set on it now. 
And so Paul, uh, so Festus explains the occasion and Agrippa looks at Paul and says, here you go, you have permission, speak for yourself. And it's at this point that Paul stretches out his hands, the chains dangling down, clinking together. This poor bedraggled man in chains speaking to a room full of dignitaries, men and women of wealth and privilege. And what does Paul do? He tells them a story. And it's a story we know. It's a story we're familiar with by now. We've heard Luke tell it in chapter 9. We've heard him explain his story to these others before. And the story he tells is his story. And so this morning, let's do this. The, the story of Paul is, is familiar to us. And yet, yet for, for me this morning, the real feature of this passage isn't the story of Paul. It's the way he uses his story. It's the way his, he presses his story upon his listeners because he's convinced that his story has bearing on the life of King Agrippa. He's convinced that his story matters to every person sitting and listening to what's going on. And so for Paul, the story of Paul is deeply important to everybody, including us, even here this morning. So let's look at two points, a savior to share and a salvation to stress. The first is a savior to share. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, what Paul does here is not reinvent the wheel for us as readers. He doesn't show us some brand new revelation we haven't seen before. We've heard his testimony a number of times. But I want to note the important points that he brings up when he speaks to Agrippa. First notice this. Paul tells Agrippa he's really glad he could finally speak to him because it sure is nice to talk to somebody who understands Judaism. Uh, For the longest time he has been dealing with Gentiles who just do not have the background in these manners. In these matters, remember when he taught, whenever these Gentiles summarize things, they always say things like, oh, he's just arguing with them about matters related to their religion. So for them, they don't even follow exactly the details of what's going on. They just know this is a theological bickering that's been happening. But now, finally, he has a ruler before him who speaks his language, who understands. And Paul is very clear. He says, I'm here because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. He makes this connection with Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, you and I, we come from the same people. And and the thing I'm preaching is part of what we've always believed. In fact, it's the fulfillment of it. Paul says, I'm standing here in these chains because God kept his promises to our fathers. And I'm telling as many people as I can. I have the same hope our fathers had. And the implication for Paul is, you should have this hope too, Agrippa. So the first thing Paul does is he shows this connection. He forms a connection, but it's already a connection they already hold. They have their Jewish faith in common together. And Paul seizes upon that common ground that they have. Even though Agrippa isn't a believer in Jesus, he is a believer in the prophets. Second, he he not only stresses their ethnic heritage, he stresses his religious commitment. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. 
And he goes on to tell how he locked up Christians and cast his vote for them to be put to death. All these years later now, 20 years at least, and Paul still thinks about Stephen. He remembers his brother whose blood he spilled. And not just Stephen, he he remembers others that he punished in the synagogues. He forced them to blaspheme the name of Jesus, to say terrible things about Christ, and he admits it. He says, I did that. He remembers how he chased them across the world, even to foreign cities. He calls it in a raging fury. There's something potent about what Paul is saying here because he's a man who carries this shameful history that is at once horrifying. And then at the same time, it's the thing that builds up his credibility. So he has to keep telling the same terrible story over and over again. Why would someone do this who is neck deep in Judaism, who is so highly thought of by his fellow Jews? Why would he throw away all that career and personal advancement if it wasn't true? And his answer is the third thing that he stresses, which is the change that Jesus brings. Because Paul says, I literally saw the light. And Jesus told me that it was really him I was attacking all that time. I was killing Christ. I was hurting Christ. I was mocking Christ. So this man is standing before them and he is at once repellent and attractive all at once because he's he's like us. He's he's real. He's an open book. He's not some two-dimensional hero of piety who fits neatly on some Fresco in a church building. He's a a bundle of contradictions all at war with each other. He hates his past and yet he treasures it because it gives him the audience that he needs. But ultimately rescued and reconciled by the sovereign hand of a gracious God who owed him nothing. Before we move from Paul's testimony here in point one to the pressure that he puts on Agrippa to believe, I want you to notice this. We've seen Paul's defense, but also his evangelism techniques are very intimately bound up with his own testimony. Paul tells his story wherever he can. The reason you've heard Paul's story so many times is because this is how he shares the gospel. He shares the gospel by sharing the good news about what God did for him. And there is a message here. There is a lesson here for us. Christian, you cannot share a gospel that you yourself have not been changed by. You may find yourself frozen in in moments where you could be sharing the gospel with someone and you see somebody that you know needs to hear it. And yet you shy away and you don't do it. Now maybe it's because you're a shy person. It might be because you're not very outgoing. It might be because you're just a timid person and that's your personality. It may be. But there is another reason why that may happen. And it may be because you're not converted. I'm not saying that if you ever feel timid when opportunity to share the gospel happens that you're not converted. But it could be because of that. 
Many churchgoers are silent about Christ throughout the week. And it's not because they haven't been taught the right technique or because they haven't gotten the right training. But it's because they have nothing to share. They, they could not say, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. They couldn't say, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth. And followed thee. They couldn't say those words. It could be. It could be that that's why you're afraid to share the gospel. Because you have no gospel to share. Now, I don't want to confuse those who are raised in the church with those who aren't saved. Um, There are many in the church who would say, I've always been saved. I've known the gospel since I was a child. I've known who Jesus is since I was little. I don't even remember when I started believing. And yet even someone like that, you could call them a cradle Christian, right? Even somebody who was raised in the church could still speak to an unbeliever and say, I was the cutest little sinner you ever saw. But I needed to repent just like the grown-ups needed to repent. I needed to admit that I was a sinner just like them. And you know what? God saved me. And he saved me so young I don't even remember And if that's you, you have a story to tell. Being young and converted doesn't mean that you don't have a testimony to share. No, you may not have uh, been a notorious sinner like Paul. You may not have done things that you were deeply ashamed of in life, but you needed a savior too. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who grew up in the church and they just don't feel like they have an exciting testimony as far as the world is concerned. What I'm talking about is someone who says, I go to church, I've gone to church, but I stay at a distance from God. I, I, I sing when I'm supposed to. I'm, I'm friendly. I, I greet others. But my life is my own. Um, church belongs over here. My real life is over here. I live the way that I want to, and I keep God at arm's length, and that keeps me safe from the demands that he places on my life. So when I hear him like, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, I say, no thank you, I will keep my life. It could be, that's you. And that could be, Why you're not sharing the gospel. And if that's you, I want you to keep listening closely because Paul does something for Agrippa that you need to hear as well. Because in the second point this morning, we have a salvation to stress. See, Paul stresses to Agrippa that he declared these things all over the region, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles also. And then he looks at Agrippa and he tells There's only one way that I've survived this long. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And then he says, all I'm doing is telling people exactly what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And then he presses this connection that he has with Agrippa. They're both men who believe the scriptures. They're both men who believe the prophets. Festus is watching all of this. And he's listening and he is becoming uncomfortable. You ever have those one of those moments where you see two people, they're having an intense conversation and you're there and you feel like you've got to say something. And so you say something weird. (laughs) Well, Festus 
says something weird. He, he gives one of my favorite deflections in all of the Bible. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. See, Festus knows this man he's speaking to is, is no fool. Knowledge isn't his problem. Brains isn't the problem. The problem is this is making him uncomfortable. And so he dismisses Paul as crazy. It's much easier to dismiss someone as crazy than to listen to what they're saying. Now, there is such a thing as too smart. I've seen it. Um, brilliant people with amazing minds who just went off the deep end. Uh, one thinks of John Nash, the brilliant mathematician. If you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, then you know his story. But that's not Paul here. Paul hasn't learned so much that his mind just stopped working. Paul says, no, I'm not out of my mind. And then he says another very important thing. He says, I am speaking true and rational words. The gospel is true. The gospel is rational. The gospel is defensible. The gospel comports with reality. The gospel is reasonable. The gospel is not something that is secretive or limited only to a select group of people. No, Paul presses Agrippa personally. He says, everything I'm saying is true. And then he says, you know about these things and I'm speaking to you boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. Agrippa knows about Jesus. Agrippa knows about Paul's persecution of Jesus. He knows about all of these things. But do you see how intimate this is getting? The thing that made it so uncomfortable for Festus was that he's moving in on Agrippa. He's not just asking Agrippa to acquit him. He's asking Agrippa to believe what the prophets and uh, all those who came before actually were testifying to. Because, see, this isn't about the grand struggle of good and evil, right and wrong, justice and injustice. No, at the end of the day, this is about this man, Agrippa. And then he presses him a little more. Paul pushes Agrippa a little bit more. And, and I wish I could hear how Paul said it. I wish I, could, I wish I could hear his tone of voice. And I wish I could hear his inflection. Was he challenging him and pressing him? Was he gentle and understanding? How did he do it? I tend to think that he did it with an understanding tone. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know That you believe. He's appealing to the heart. He's appealing to what's really going on in here with this man in front of him. He makes the move. Do you believe? You have people in your life, I I hope, that you're, you're building relationships with and yet they don't believe. They don't go to church. They stay devoted to themselves and their families. They're, they're good people maybe, but they're not followers of Jesus. And yet you won't say the thing to them. <laughs> you won't press the question. You're afraid. What are you, you going to do? What if they say no? What if they reject you? What if they don't want to talk to you anymore? And so you just don't do it. You don't do what Paul does here. 
Paul says, do you believe? He does it, even if it feels like stepping out on a limb. Even as you're reading the passage, it feels like an odd thing for Paul to do. Why would you do that, Paul? Why would you ask him if he believes? You just want him to get you out of there. And yet Paul does what he needs to do. Even if it does feel like going out on a limb. He does what he needs to do in each of our own relationships with unbelievers as well. We all need to be practicing this. See, Paul doesn't just leave it unsaid, but he presses it. He says, do you believe? There are people in your life you are afraid to talk about spiritual things with. Maybe you have a family member. They know you've gone to church. Maybe even they go to church. You can't bring yourself to talk about spiritual things with them. Look, he's got a relationship with the king, barely. (laughs) Who has that kind of relationship with the king where he has the right to ask him if he believes the prophets? And yet Paul does. Because you see, for Paul, this isn't about his freedom. This is about their freedom. It's about Agrippa's freedom. He looks around this room and he sees all of these people who are in spiritual bondage. And so in a, in, a, in a playful tone, Agrippa decides that he's going to respond awkwardly. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And, and in a sense, he says, these, these sort of life changes take time, Paul. You can't just ask me to, on the spot, drop everything and become a Christian. And Paul says, I don't care how long it takes, <laughs> whether short or long. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am accept these chains. There are people in your life that you need to play the long game with. Neighbors, people you see a lot, people you need to be a good, consistent, ongoing testimony to so that they know the gospel is real in your life. And they need to know, need to know that they're not a, just a mark in your life, that you want to get a notch on your belt because you shared the gospel and they started coming to church. There are people in your life, you need, they need to know that. But there are people that you may only have a passing opportunity with. Paul doesn't care if it's a short investment or a long investment as long as people hear the gospel. And what I would say is in your life, you need to evaluate the people in your life that you need to be playing the short game with and the long game with. There are some people that take that long time investment from you and there are some you're only going to have a moment with. And you need to learn how to share the gospel with both. So Paul explains, he says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except these chains. So you, you hear Paul right here. He's trying to convert this room full of wealthy aristocrats with power and authority. They need this. You could be in a fantastic financial, social, professional, relational place in your life. And maybe you are free in an outward sense. You can go where you want. You can buy what you want. You could be as free as you could possibly imagine wanting to be in a material sense. But if you haven't bound the knee to Jesus, none of those other freedoms matter. Because if you don't repent, what happens is you will look back on... Those advantages, all those successes, all those freedoms, all those things, and you will see them for what they were. They were the chains that dragged you into the gloomy darkness of your own heart and misery on the last day. 
All that finery. All those benefits, those vehicles, those goods that you enjoyed. The comfortable house. Just parts of one giant cage that was a prison of your own making. Paul may be standing in front of this king in chains, but Paul wants him to know Agrippa is the one who is in bondage and the man in chains is the one who's free. The man on the throne is not. And Paul has a message that if he'll hear it, if he'll respond to it, he could be a new man and far better for it. And it's the same message that he shared for everyone in that room to hear, not just Agrippa. And Luke wrote it down so we could hear it too. Bow the knee to Jesus. Take his yoke on you. Wear his chains. Wear his bonds. Be constrained by Christ now and then you'll really be free because you will have his direction, his purpose, his peace and his forgiveness. And you'll know why you wake up each day. And you'll know why you were put here and why you have breath in your lungs. You'll know what you were made for and how you should live. He'll he'll tell you in his word when you veered off from what he made you for. Don't you want that? Aren't you weary from making your own purposes and making your own way? Don't you long to have peace with your maker and lay down your arms? I would end this morning the same way that Paul ends. If I could, I would persuade you to be a Christian. I would persuade you that Jesus is worth it. I would persuade you that your needs are as deep and infinite as God is holy. I would persuade you that the one that God's people expected has finally come. And in only that short amount of time that we're given in this world, he expects us to turn to his son. Rest in his son and live in the son and to do so without waiting or delaying another moment. Let's pray together. Our God and our maker, would you help us this morning? Because in our hearts, we're timid, we're cowardly, we're afraid of being disliked and rejected, but... Would you make us bold to tell others the truth about you, that you are our God and maker, that your son has come to rescue us from our sins. And for those who may not believe this morning, would you give them a love for you and would you drive them to their knees in repentance? For all of us, would you submit us to you? Whether believers or unbelievers, would you take us and change us and give us the freedom that Paul holds out in this passage this morning? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.